0: The message you are listening to was recorded by Campus Outreach Minneapolis, the college ministry of Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota, for the 2015 SENT Conference. More information about Campus Outreach Minneapolis can be found at cominneapolis.org. So when I was 12, I prayed with my mother one night to receive Christ and was baptized on profession of faith in a Baptist church in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. When I was 13 which, when I was 13, our youth group came to hear Billy Graham in Minneapolis from Eau Claire, and I went forward to recommit my life. <clears throat> and at age 13, that would have been 1961. Yes. So, but now, Paul, looking back, so I used to tell people I became a Christian at age 12 when I received Christ as Savior, but now looking back, when I was in young childhood, I used to love to hear, Bibles, hear the Bible, well, as soon as I could read, I used to love to read the Bible, sing hymns, and I took very elementary piano lessons and I loved to play hymns on the piano and sing, and I remember praying on the playground quite often, things that I now would think of as pretty clear signs of conversion at an early age. So I don't know when I became a Christian.
1: There you have it. Um, <clears throat> all right, next question is one that Someone asked, and it's also one that I wrote down ahead of time. But I don't know the exact story, but you know, you referenced a lot of family in Minnesota. Now you live in Phoenix. Yep. What brought about your move to Phoenix, or when did you locate there? Why did you locate in Phoenix? Yeah,
0: uh, Margaret's health is the short answer. Um, Margaret had had an auto accident a number of years ago, and after that, she had chronic pain in some muscle groups in her neck, neck, back, shoulders. And um, a lot of prayer and a lot of doctor's visits and didn't seem to go away. And then some friends said, did you like to use our, our second home in Mesa, Arizona, which is a suburb of Phoenix? So we said, sure. And so we visited them, and Margaret felt better. A few months later, we went back, and Margaret felt better. So to make a long story short, I phoned up Phoenix Seminary and said, would you have a job for me? And they said yes, so we moved. I had been 20 years at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in um, Illinois, Deerfield, Illinois. And that was, um, and I was, uh, I'd gone from uh, assistant to associate to full professor. I had tenure, which means they can't fire you unless you really do something stupid. And, and, And I was a member of faculty senate, which is the senior group of faculty members there. And I'd been department chairman in biblical and systematic theology, so I was like, I thought I'd stay there for the rest of my life. And Trinity at that time probably had the reputation for being the best academic MDiv program in the country. And so it was a really wonderful job to be in. Um, But um, we were thinking about whether to move or not and one day I was reading in uh, Ephesians 5 and um, it says even so husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. And um, I read that I thought, well, if my body were hurting the way Margaret's did, would I move? And yes, I would. And so I thought out of obedience to Ephesians 5, I should say that I would move too. So there's a longer story to that, and it's online. But that's the long and short of it. And uh, God has brought much blessing to both of us um, through the move. We've been married 46 years now. Let me just say to all of you here, I strongly, strongly, strongly recommend marriage. <laughs> okay, and it just—that's that, free. That was free. Yeah, that's, that's free. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's a joy, and um, and it, it continues to. I don't know if this makes sense, but we we just enjoy each other more than ever. So, I have a schedule that takes me out of town. It looks like it will be a total in 2015. I'll be away from home 86 days. Margaret will have been with me 80 of those 86 days, so we traveled together very much. She decided not to come with me to Bismarck, North Dakota, last February,
1: <laughs>
0: and not to Grand Rapids last April. She could have, but she didn't want to. So,
1: yeah. So anyway, that's the story. I, I often don't want to be here. In this <laughs> yeah. So I can relate with your wife. Um, so here's a question. There, there's a few of these that came in uh, on the on the ticker, and <clears throat> In general, one says, when does competition turn bad in terms of pride? Or another one that said, how do you balance competing with enjoying the greatness of others when they beat you or they're better than you? Yeah. Just a little biographical note. Everyone do strength finders? I know the U of M, everyone has to do it, right? So competition is one of my strengths. So, uh, this is really helpful for me to, to, to feel yeah. like my, my strength of competition isn't all bad. I, Anyone else competition in your strength Finder? There you go. You know what I'm talking about. I'm better than you. He just asked when it turns bad.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: Got me. I feel like I'm blushing. <laughs> okay.
0: So, Paul... I like those questions because they point out that while I was making very simple statements about those eleven or nine uh, uh, factors, obeying them is complex. Because what we're our responsibility before God is to be obedient to the whole Bible and everything it teaches us about our situation in life, and there are always balancing factors. When are you? When you? When does? When does? Responsible diligence in work become workaholic, or when does enjoying periods of rest become laziness, and so when does competition become cutthroat oh well, there are some danger signs you're trying to harm the other guy rather than do better do do better do do best you can do um that kind of thing so. That's a complex and that's a complex question. A good question. I don't have a simple answer for it, but it's uh, be aware of the whole testimony of God in all of Scripture about attitudes of heart.
1: Maybe I would just throw in as well on that one. I find a lot of help when answering complex questions in Scripture, to or of how life would apply to it. To have other people speak into my life. Yep. And I think a good safeguard is if you ask that question because you're competitive, like me, and you wonder when it goes a little bit across the line, ask people around you and be humble and submissive to the people that see you and know you and say, hey, I'm competitive. I like to compete. At times, that pushes me and other people to do better. Sometimes I get cutthroat and I try to kill people. Um, (laughs) And help help me not do that. That would be bad for me and bad for them.
0: <laughs> yeah, but living in Christian community is a big help, isn't it? Yeah, And being able to be with with others who will speak to you. Yeah, Sure. Uh,
1: a question that I had kind of along those lines, you were talking about how when you walk into Walmart and one yeah. of the Walton brothers is there, you're not very jealous or you're okay with the inequality. What do I care? Yep. Um, where, where I find it to be more of, of a struggle for me and inequality is not when there's someone who's vastly outside of my sphere. Right. So I don't ever compare myself to John Piper and his preaching. I mean, yeah. he's, he's John Piper. I don't either. But but when <laughs>
0: <laughs> we're, he's we're, he's amazingly gifted in preaching.
1: But well,
0: now look, I have to speak truthfully. I <laughs> thought from time to time, why
1: can't I preach like that? But yeah. it's just not going to happen.
0: Uh, <laughs> just, it's just not God, Not who God made me to be. So I got to tell the truth here.
1: Yeah. Where, where I can struggle is more...
0: But I'm thankful for him. Very. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Me too. Uh, Me yeah, too. and we did have breakfast this morning. Oh, nice. Yeah. Are you guys pretty pretty good friends? I know you've written some books together. Yeah. I don't know how close that makes people when you write books together. If, if... It depends. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll remember that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, the co-authored... I've co-authored three books, one with John Piper on recovering biblical manhood and womanhood, One with Vern Poitras at Westminster Seminary on Bible translation and gender-neutral Bible translation, and one with Barry Asmus, a professional economist in my church, who we wrote on world poverty, and all three cases, we remain good friends afterward.
1: Mm, That's good enough. Yeah. Um, So, back to, to Pastor John, I don't really compare myself with Pastor John. Yeah, I understand what you mean. But... But if it's one of my peers where the the line of inequality isn't as much, that's where it gets tough. For instance, what you said is what I want is for Phoenix Seminary to, you know, I'll teach for them and they'll pay me. But what about when there's someone else who's a professor there who's maybe teaching less than you, who gets paid more than you, where where it's more of a level playing field. Does that make sense? Yeah. I feel like in in those moments envy... Which I think that's what it is—is is envy becomes a lot, a lot closer. So, like, if you're an athlete, yeah. I don't compare myself to Michael Jordan yep. or someone like that, but I compare myself to Reed, who I'm much better than. Um, <laughs> and 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 I just wonder how can you help Reed with this? Like, help him. I'm trying. I want to love my brother.
0: Yeah. Um. I was just. I'm trying. There is um, Paul. I'm trying to. I'm trying to think of a couple Bible verses. There's one um, in. I think it's in Numbers where um, the seven, the three sons of, were Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, said why can't we offer sacrifice? They're Levites, they have access to the temple and temple furnishings and things, but they couldn't. Off- and Moses could offer sacrifice, and they tried to offer sacrifice, and fire came forth from the Lord and consumed them. And and uh, before that happened, Moses said to them, would you seek the priesthood also? God's given you all these blessings, and would you seek the priesthood also? It's There's always in the human heart a tendency to want more status than God has allotted to us. But oh yeah, this is the verse I was thinking of. It's right at the end of John's Gospel where Peter is talking to Jesus. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. That's John. The one who also had leaned back against him during supper and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, that's John, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. And so if God blesses somebody else, I think the Lord's saying to us, what is that to you? You follow me. Just be faithful in what God has entrusted to you. And that's our responsibility. So, But you're bringing up with competition.
1: Yeah. No, I, I, think, that, I think that helps. Is that I, th- helpful? I think both of those passages get at, it, it's, I think the inclination of the heart is to look at other people yes. as opposed to being thankful and content with what God has given you. Yes, and
0: the temptation never ends, no matter how successful you are in life. There's always somebody who's more successful in some area than you are, and it's just, you try to do well, but you be content with the gifts that God has given you and with the calling that he's placed you in. And then say, and then the Lord is saying to us about everybody else, what is that to you? You follow me.
1: Um. Two questions, changing changing gears a little bit. One, and I, I, I'm going to put these two together, because one says, how does the gospel fit into this? And the other one says, how does the Great Commission fit into what you just <coughs> talked about? Yeah. So.
0: yeah, I needed to say that. Um, it's Ephesians 2, 10. Um, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 for by grace you have been saved through faith and that's not your own doing it's the gift of God not because of works lest anyone should boast so that's justification by faith alone but the very next verse <clears throat> Ephesians 2:10, Paul says for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them so you're justified by faith alone but then after you're justified what do you do? Ephesians two ten says you do good works. That means love your neighbor as yourself. That means be a good student. It means be a good employee. It means uh, be a good parent if you have children. You do good works, and I think medical missions is in. It's not just because it brings people to Christ. It's because healing people's body is pleasing to God in itself. It's good works. Building church Christian church has built hospitals to heal people's bodies, and. It's, the Christian church throughout history has built schools to educate people's minds. And educational missions, sending people to staff schools and build schools overseas, is, it's good in itself in addition to the fact that it brings people to Christ. So I think that doing business in doing good for other people, it's good in itself in addition to the witness to others it does because it's doing good works. So this lens crafter guy that makes this, If he's doing it as a believer, he's working as serving the Lord and not men. He's doing it under the Lord, but he's doing good works for other people. And those things are commanded by God so they are spiritually, eternally meaningful. Not just because somebody comes into the kingdom, but because God is pleased that we do good works and obedient to him. Let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So I think Christians have a blind spot in the fact that we're not justified by good works, but after you're justified, you're supposed to do good works for the rest of your life, and that is pleasing to God. And so, is that helpful?
1: Yeah.
0: That. So, how does it fit? How does Never business fit in the gospel? It's it's the outworking. See, the gospel comes into societies throughout history, and the first thing that happens is people believe in Jesus Christ for their sa- as their Savior, and they're justified by faith alone. They're born again. But then the next thing that happens is families are changed, and marriages are changed, and parent-child relationships are changed, and neighborhoods are changed, and schools are changed, and hospitals are changed, and businesses are changed, and politics and government are changed. It's been that way throughout every culture and every society throughout history. and It's going to be that way till Christ returns. The implications of the gospel are that the teaching of the whole counsel of God, all of scripture, permeates society and transforms society in the arts, in music, in business, in politics, in government, in Medicine
1: in every, every area of study. Yeah. And one thing that I thought of is with, every, with your nine categories, after you said each one, there's a little phrase that you said after every one. It's a good thing, and it can be... What was the phrase that you used? Many temptations to sin. Yeah, and I think that a place where the gospel enters in is all of those things have such a, a propensity for temptation yep. and what really frees you from being controlled from not not just having money but loving money yep. is the transforming power of a, of a greater affection of yep. what Christ could do in your life so I think you could argue that apart from Christ freeing you and, and the way the gospel changes your life all of those things will will, or will you'll struggle all the more with the temptation
0: Sure, and go astray without Christ in you but it's interesting in 1 Timothy 6.17, I'm going speaking on this on Sunday morning. As for the rich in this present age, charge them to give away all their money. doesn't say that. Mm. <laughs> it doesn't say that. It says charge them not to be haughty or arrogant, boastful. Nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So I think Paul is saying there are rich people in your church in Ephesus he was writing to. This is not wrong for them to be rich, but they shouldn't set their hopes on riches. Their hope for happiness, their hope for fulfillment, their goal in life, but that should be, they should set their hope on God, and then uh, he, he richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So,
1: um, I'll give you another softball. How old are you? 40,
0: uh, 67.
1: All right. 40. (laughs) Why did I start to say 40? How
0: old would you like to be? (laughs) What is that to you? Follow me. (laughs) And so God has called me to this point in my life at age 67. And and I'm noticing that I get tired faster. And I can't run as far as fast.
1: How often do you run?
0: in theory three days a week and practice <laughs> two, one or two. Well, but more recently it's been three and then I had a little injury in my foot and so then I had stopped for a while, but
1: mm. yeah. Um, Pastor John runs a lot. You, you and he ever go for a run together? No. You, you missed out on it. As you are writing that book, you guys should have gone for runs together.
0: Yeah. What'd Except nice? he was one place
1: and I was another. Yeah. Well, no,
0: he was actually at Trinity for a while, but I was teaching, so.
1: Yeah. Um, Where's the line between earning money and spending money? How do you know where you should spend money you earn and what will glorify God the most in that? It's
0: a constant, lifelong challenge to know what is right. You earn $100. The Lord wants you to give some. The New Testament doesn't specify how much. He wants you to give some, and we've taught our, when I got fifty cents allowance when I was a kid, I put five cents in the offering, because my parents brought me up that way. They taught me to tithe, and we've always done that, and then we've been able to give more after a certain level of income. And so, the New Testament says give, give generously. I think it's required of us, if we're responsible stewards, to save for the future, because everybody I know who's grown old and hasn't died, has been unable to work because of physical weakness at some point. And so not saving for the future is is making your dependence and others care for you. So I think we should save something responsibly for the future, but we can set our heart on that. It can be too much. So There's a judgment call. Give some, save some. And I think we should spend some on ourselves, certainly with the necessities of life, but God richly furnishes us with everything for en- our enjoyment. First Timothy six seventeen. I don't think it's wrong to spend money on vacation, or just something that we enjoy. So, um, going to a nice restaurant from time to time, or something like that, if we have ability to do it. Not everybody does. Um, but that's constant heart challenge, and it differs from person to person. Mm. I'm not sure what else. Margaret and I have a pattern. At the beginning of each year, we say, "Okay, now for 2015, what percentage of our income are we going to give to the Lord?" And we set a percentage, and we stick with that. Insofar as we are able, one year we couldn't uh, because we had very unexpected expenses, but we gave substantially, but not what we had planned. But every other year, we've given what we planned. And then the next year, we we set another percentage, and we plan to do that. So. We just do that consciously and then save and spend. And when you have adult children, sometimes there are other reasons for spending money. So,
1: like um, the water park.
0: Yeah, that
1: kind of thing. What was your favorite slide to go down? <laughs>
0: well, now look, with a two year old, you don't go up in the 10 story high one, you go on the smaller ones. So, probably the orange one. <laughs>
1: Um, <laughs> what's your view on businesses that do exploit workers, like Foxconn factories, where workers have committed suicide? Like what factories? Foxconn? What's not that like with the, uh, in Indonesia, didn't they, <clears throat> like Apple stuff?
0: Yeah. Okay. Um, so, um, this economist friend of mine, Barry Asmus, and I have a book called, uh, The Poverty of Nations, A Sustainable Solution. This came out a couple years ago from Crossway Books. And um, it's got a lot of those international poverty questions. Um, almost always, where businesses are exploiting workers, and people are evil, and owners are evil throughout the world. And they will, if allowed, to do that. But there's a failure of the government, if it's Indonesia, there's a failure of the state or national government to enforce safety standards in the, in the country. So that's number one. Now the business owners if they're American or European business owners who know that's going on they're morally culpable and accountable to God and consumer outrage should be uh, a restraining, it should be uh, uh, encouraged to restrain their business practices if they are but Paul also I think it is quite difficult to be sure you're getting accurate information uh, because there can be propaganda that distorts what's actually going on too so uh, but anyway, we've got some stuff on that in that book right. um. <clears throat> if I knew there were if I knew that a company if I knew and I felt fairly confident in the facts that a company was producing tennis shoes and exploiting and really really endangering and being physically harmful to their laborers I wouldn't buy that kind of tennis shoe mm-hmm. so
1: um. When you were speaking you mentioned that productivity is the answer to poverty. Yes Uh, Could you just you said you could ask me more about that in the Q&A and there's a few people asked the question of just The difference between sharing and producing. Yeah, so
0: Josh. Could we have that slide up? This is a map of the world by poverty or wealth or poverty the color code is per capita income per capita is per person So over $20,000 per capita income per year is green. These are the rich countries of the world. Canada, the United States, Northern Europe, Australia, um, South Korea, Japan. Those are the wealthy countries of the world. Um, And then the middle-income countries. So the United States is $50,000, about, per capita income. These are 1912 figures. United States $50,000. Middle income, 8 to 20... So Mexico is $15,000 per capita income. China is nine. And so these are middle-income countries, China, Russia, much of Latin America. Then the poor countries, $3,000 to $8,000 per capita income, India, for instance, those are poor countries. And then very poor are dark red, uh, Afghanistan, Pakistan, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, North Korea, interestingly enough, compared to wealthy South Korea and Haiti is dark red. Uh, so those are the very very poor countries of the world. Now if you go back 250 years the world looked like this. Everybody was poor. There were a few kings and queens and there were some a few very wealthy plantation owners or shipping magnates. but most everybody was on, on very uh, poor basis and then starting with the Industrial Revolution beginning about 1770 in England and then spread to Northern Europe and North America uh, factories began to produce more, they doubled, quadrupled their output, per capita income doubled, and then it tripled, and then it doubled six more times in England, or increased six more times in England and much of the northern Europe, and then we get back to this situation. Why didn't these countries develop, and how can they? They can develop by following the same path that these countries have followed, and um, and so we outline actually 79 factors in this book, The Poverty of Nations that contribute to economic growth and their factors consistent with biblical teachings um, having to do with the economic system, the government and the cultural beliefs and values. But countries have come out of poverty even in my lifetime. I was born in 1948. In 1950 South Korea was poorer than almost all of sub-Saharan Africa. It was one of the poorest countries in the world, just a poor agricultural economy. In 1950 now it is the 12th richest country in the world. Why? Because it makes computers, it makes microwaves, it makes cars, by manufacturing products of value. Chile is going to be the first country in Latin America to come to become green in this uh, chart, um, uh, because it's at 18,000. You got to get to 20,000 per capita income to become green color on the chart. But and Ch- Chile has done it by fruits and vegetables to export mainly to North America. So. Countries have increased their wealth and their prosperity by manufacturing and making products of value for others. The reason, it isn't natural resources. Latin America, Africa, immensely wealthy in natural resources. But it's corrupt governments, many of them propped up by multi-billion dollars of foreign aid that keep the corrupt governments in power. And um, so anyway, that's short answer. Uh, countries can come to can increase their prosperity. And many are. So. Yeah, that's another topic. You didn't ask me to talk about it, but it's, but let me just say one other thing. Um, Paul says when he went in Galatians 2, 2.10, only they would have us remember the poor, which very thing I was eager to do. And that verse began to convict my heart, thinking the Lord is... Paul in talking about the gospel says, in in addition to justification by faith alone, the Jerusalem Apostles wanted him to remember the poor. It was at the heart of what they were doing. And I was eager to do this, said Paul. And so I thought, what am I doing to help the poor? Margaret was going week after week to an inner city ministry in Phoenix, distributing food and clothing at a food bank and a clothing bank. And sometimes I would go with her, but I thought, is there any way I could use the gifts that God has given me to be more effective to help world poverty? And that's what led to this book co-authored with uh, an economist. Um, And um, I think we have a unique solution to world poverty because we are not addressing the question of how to help poor individuals or poor communities. We're saying, how do you help nations as a whole because it's at the level of the nation that poverty or wealth is determined. <clears throat> and so we're saying what changes have to be made in the nation as a whole and it's the only book we ever We're aware of the only book in the history of the world that addresses world poverty at the level of the nation And does so from biblical perspectives We've got over 400 quotations of scripture in here. So mm. the poverty of nations mm. but, pro, but foreign aid isn't it Equalizing wealth and poverty in the country isn't it <clears throat> printing money isn't the solution Um, Forgiveness of foreign debt isn't the solution. Fair trade coffee isn't the solution. Um, uh, Natural resources are not the solution. And we go through all those why. It's it's countries in, Japan has no natural resources and in 1900 it was poor. Uh, Now it's wealthy, second wealthiest country in the world at the end of the 20th century by manufacturing. So countries can, and Singapore is wealthy, Taiwan is wealthy uh, with no natural resources. So that's not, anyway, I could go on. Yeah. I hope that's of some interest.
1: Yeah, that really is. Uh, a question I have off of that, so your your wife was going to the, the food shelter, and you thought, yeah. how can I use the way that God's made me? Yeah. So you wrote a book. Yeah. At, at what point did you realize, I mean, how many people have Wayne Grudem's systematic theology book? A few, a few of, yeah, you know, 30% yeah. of the room. So at what point did you think, you know what? I'm gonna write a systematic theology <laughs> I can tell you that. <laughs> John? How did you know that, you know, and I think I could do a good job at that. I don't <laughs> think I would do a very good
0: job at that. <laughs> well, I'm surprised how the Lord has blessed it, but there was a conversation actually. Okay, I came to Bethel College in 1977. I started teaching the basic Introduction to Christian Theology class that was required. And I enjoyed teaching, but the textbook that I used was Louis Burkhoff, Systematic Theology. Berkhoff has untranslated phrases in Greek, Hebrew, Latin, German, French, and Dutch. And in addition, he uses many English words that students didn't believe were really English words. (laughs) Because they're technical theological terms. So every class period I have to come with a vocabulary list. I thought somebody's got to write a systematic theology that's understandable. Second thing is, He would give all this string of Bible verses, but never quote the verse and students, I know, did not look up all those verses. (laughs) So I thought, why doesn't somebody write a systematic theology that quotes the verses? Because the words of Scripture have power to change people's hearts. And otherwise, it's just dry theology. And the third thing is, there's no application to life. And I thought, Wait a minute, the New Testament never teaches theology without application to life. The book of Romans has immense theology but it has a lot of application. Hebrews has deep theology but a lot of application. If the Bible doesn't teach theology without application to life, why should we teach theology without application to life? So I tried to have a section on application at the end of the book, uh, end of each chapter. So it was trying to meet a need. And then there was John Sailhammer and John Piper and I were all three in the same... John Piper was New Testament, John Sailhammer Old Testament, and I was in theology. We,
1: I think All at Bethel? We,
0: all at Bethel, the same time. Yeah, and Lydia, where are you, Lydia? Lydia's grandfather, Robert Stein, was in the department, too. I just found that out of break. Um, and Walt Wessel and Al Glenn. But anyway, the three of us, John Sailhammer, John Piper, and I for some reason, I think we may have gone to a cafeteria at the University of Minnesota or someplace down in, that, in this area, and we were having lunch, and somebody said, why don't we write a textbook on such-and-such? Such? And I thought, you know, I, will write, I think I could write a textbook on systematic theology.
1: So it was, that was a conversation. Wow. Com- Just when you thought, good things, nothing good happens at Comstock. <laughs> <coughs>
0: I, I'm not sure. It may have been Luther Seminary bookstore and then the cafeteria there. I'm not sure. We went somewhere.
1: That would make more sense. Yeah, okay. That would make more sense. <laughs> huh. That's fascinating. Um, <laughs> well, it's, uh, it's almost nine. So, I mean, there, there are a few more questions on here, but I'm just wondering only because uh, I don't want to just pick a few of these. Maybe there's one or two people, you know, if you're brave enough to raise your hand, ask a question. If I didn't ask your question and you really wanted us to ask it, here's your chance.
0: Yeah, and I said to Paul, I enjoy verbal questions because I can see the face of the person asking. and...
1: And it doesn't have to be on this. It can be on whatever you want. What's your name? Anna. Anna. Yep. Or just using um business in a way that is not horrifying. It's very simple, but you're still working with that company.
0: How what are your thoughts on that? Like how do you still impact the company okay. that are not Yeah. Anna, that's just a really it's a great question because it's a situation that everybody's facing in the business world, and uh, you work for companies, many of whom are not run by Christians. So it's prayer regularly. Lord, help me to know when it's when this is so bad I have to say something, or when this is so bad I can no longer work for this company. Me. And that's a personal judgment call. It's hard. For, it, it, what Paul said a few minutes ago about talking with other believers and just getting their advice, that's really helpful, too, so you get other perspectives. But I don't think there's any quick answer to that. Um, you're, if you're working in the secular world, you're going to work for a company that doesn't do everything the way you think they should. There's, always, you know, you've got, But if there's dishonesty or, or breaking the law, you know, then there's some things that just go over the, over the line. You say... I can't work for them anymore, or you say I have to say something even if it jeopardizes my job and that's a question for the that's a judgment call that you make by praying and asking the Lord for direction. Does that help? Yes. Okay. Good question. There's another one back there. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, what
0: you've been teaching. Yeah. Just kind of examples
1: or stories of people kind of faithfully applying some of this stuff um, and the impact that it's had just to kind of get like kind of some real life stories like kind of the
0: application of something. And I forgot your name. I know Hoken. you. Hoken. Hoken. Okay. Um, on this Poverty of Nations book or the business book? Either or. Okay. What happens with the business book is that I keep meeting people who say, I wish I had read this 20 or 30 years ago because I've been working in business and I never knew it was a good thing. And it just, um, somebody said to me just a couple weeks ago in Chicago, he's, he, works for, um, he works for Allstate Insurance. He said it was um, rejuvenating or restorative or something, just to, just to read and be affirmed that these things are good. Um, so that that's the kind of thing I'm hearing and this is the kind of book if I'm sitting next to somebody on the airplane, it's an easy book to give because so many people work in business. The poverty book, we're looking at changing whole nations and it's hard. It's a long process. Um, we were in Albania, which is the poorest country in Europe, just, just here and um, we didn't we, we knew we would speak to some Christians, Barry Asmus and I, uh, who are in business, but they're a small percentage of the population. It's largely Eastern Orthodox, and Muslim, and non-religion. But the host that brought us there, mission group, had arranged for us to meet with the um, governor of the Bank of Albania, which is like the chairman of the Federal Reserve Board, um, Ardian Fulani, and he was really impressed by what we were doing, and that led to subsequent conversations. Led to him coming to Arizona and bringing some of his assistants. And it was interesting. He had us do a very nice lunch in Tirana, the capital of Albania. And I was sitting next to him. And um, uh, yes, somebody said, oh, could you give thanks for the food?" So I prayed, and when I prayed, then I just felt the Lord leading, and I put my hand on his shoulder, and prayed for the God for God to guide him as he gave leadership to the financial situation in Albania and there was a little tear coming down his eye down his face. Like the Lord touched him at that moment. So you don't know, but he's got all the material. And then we didn't know that this was going to happen, but they arranged for us. We had thirty minutes with the Prime Minister of Albania. I sat right across the table from him and talked. So I don't know, we were in Uganda in October and uh, we mostly were speaking at a Christian university there, Uganda Christian University, 12,000 students on this book. Very receptive audience to, and challenging students to interact with. But we had one meeting where um, Barry Asmus, my economist friend, and I both spoke, and then another speaker was Rebecca Kadaga, who's the Speaker of Parliament in Uganda. She's an evangelical Christian. And she stood up and she was appreciative for what we said. And she said, Now, this recent study uh, from the Heritage Foundation says that Uganda is the most corrupt government in Eastern Africa, or the most corrupt country in Eastern Afri- East Africa. He said, she said, We profess to be a Christian nation. They're, they're 40% Catholic, 45% Protestant. It's amazing. And she said, This is a disgrace to our nation. We must change. And the chief judge, for the, f- chief child judge for the whole country, was sitting in the front row. So, I mean, that, but those kind of impact points, you don't know how long it's going to take to impact and we're we're trying to find heroic leaders in poor countries that will bring about change because we cannot change those internal situations in countries. But the one thing that can happen, and Barry and I have been in contact with some fairly well-to-do Christians who want to help. the one thing we recommend for wealthy Christians in rich nations to do that can really help poor countries is invest in for profit businesses, not non profit, for profit businesses in poor countries. Because if the businesses are making a profit, they're meeting a need. And so, John Coors of the Coors Beer Company family, but he's in the ceramics division, but he's an committed Evangelical Christian with substantial wealth, and he and some others, it's public, it's been in the Wall Street Journal, they have formed an organization of um, wealthy entrepreneurs who are intentionally investing in for-profit businesses in poor countries, and that, that's, a major, that's a major way to bring about change. So I don't know if those are helpful, those are just some, we're hoping that the impact will spread.
1: It's pretty amazing to think that <clears throat> that happened because you were distributing clothing at a at a shelter and thought, how could I use my design, the way that God's made me, right. to impact the kingdom, not just what everyone would, would maybe think about doing to impact poverty or you know the, those you know specific needs, yeah, yeah. but to use your design, which I just think for all of you. How has God made you? Yeah. What do you love doing? Yeah. How has he gifted you? Yeah. And how can you, how can you take that and use that to advance his kingdom? And don't just, don't just think about, well, this is what you're supposed to do. You know, Helping poverty equals this. But think, who am I? What's my design? And what gives me joy as I can meet this need? That's just a very powerful testimony of mm. the Lord using your specific gifts to do far more than would have ever happened had you just continued for the last, you know, 15 years to faithfully, faithfully distribute clothing mm. and fix yeah. bowls of soup and things like that? Not that that's bad. Yeah. But there's a there's a specific way that God made you. Yeah. That's encouraging. Yeah.
0: And it's true for everybody. Yeah. That you're not anybody else. You're not like. It's easy for me to look at friends, Don Carson, John Piper, and say why can't they travel so much and speak so much and yet they keep on writing and when I travel I can't write and when I write I can't travel I don't know how and then the Lord just saying to me Wayne I just made you to be who you are you're not them and I have to be content that he's he's entrusted me with certain gifts and certain abilities and certain requirements and I just have to do what he made me to do that it's always uh, there's a there are some things in life that you never fully figure out. You figure out more and more. Stewardship of money, stewardship of time, calling. But there's always praying for guidance and trying to refine it and get it right.
1: And, and when, when did you write The the Poverty of Nations? Or when did you have the thought? I'm gonna, I'm this gonna came do... out
0: in 2013. Um, well, yeah, but I was speak, I was speaking on this Business for the Glory of God book at a conference in London with Christian people from business from around different parts of the world. And a couple from Nairobi, Kenya, Connie and I've forgotten her husband's name, they were prosperous market, they had a market in uh, Nairobi. We were talking afterward and she looked at me and there was a Christian home that we were staying in. There was a map of the world on it. And she looked at me and she said, Wayne, why is Africa so poor? And I couldn't think of anything to say. And then she said, are we under a curse? And I was stunned. I couldn't think of one answer why Africa was so poor and that that little one that little five-second interchange stuck in my mind and I thought I've got to figure this out and I got and I began to read a bunch of economics books and found that many of them when they found answers to poverty they were consistent with biblical principles. So anyway, economists don't, pure economists do not know the answer to poverty because all they do is dollars and cents they don't do cultural values and beliefs you can't measure them, and they don't, by and large, do governmental systems because that's not quantifiable. But those are massive impact, impact massive impacts on economics.
1: <laughs> well, I have, I have one last question for you. Um, I'm curious, kind of along the lines of understanding how God's uniquely made us as individuals. Yeah. You know, for for a group of of college students, I mean, I, I hear about. I think about even the books that you've written, the number of people that have systematic theology, the fact that in your late 50s, early 60s, you wrote more books and now have begun influencing uh, poverty on a, on a nation level. And just to be giving your life away like that uh, at your age, it, it's you're a, a hero, at least in... To, uh, don't say that. Well, at this point, you know, hopefully the Lord will continue to, to use you. But what would you say to a group like us of of college, you know, I'm going to include myself in with the college students, um, <laughs> us young ones, um, <laughs> to if, how, what would you encourage us at this point in our lives to really pursue the Lord in a, in a radical way or to, to walk with him in a, in a deeper, intimate way? What, what should we be focusing on or thinking about or prioritizing?
0: keeping your devotional life strong, keeping your relationship with the Lord strong, and your personal prayer life strong and Bible reading. Um, I inherited from my parents a habit of reading the Bible every day and praying, and that became a regular discipline throughout college and seminary and doctoral work. Um, And Paul... um, I am aware now at age 67 looking back that God has brought a measure of blessing to the ministry that he's entrusted to me. I'm thankful for that. Um, I don't know if it will continue, you don't know what the future is but I do know that a key to that for everybody whether you're an artist, a musician, a hockey player, or a financial analyst, the key to remaining faithful in your career is daily, regularly, personal time of private Bible reading and prayer. And can I say a couple more things about that?
1: Yeah. Please.
0: Um, and if you if you want to leave at this point
1: in please, the show, you're welcome to.
0: Okay, this will be two more minutes. Um, people are different in time of day and how they do this. What I do is I read a chapter in the old, usually a chapter in the Old Testament, a chapter in the New Testament, sometimes just one, sometimes just half a chapter, just where the Lord's speaking to my heart. And then I have a notebook with a, it's a loose leaf, a five by eight notebook that I have a page for, you know, each member of my family and a page for my seminary and a page for my church and other things. But then when I work through that and I write down things that where I'm praying about or the Lord answers prayer, then um, at the end of praying through that list, I just remain still in the Lord's presence and don't pray anything more, don't read any more verses. I'm just at peace, 5, 10, 15 minutes, and varies. But those are times when God seems to draw especially near to me. And that quietness, I think it's what the Bible calls waiting on the Lord, I find very important. I'll say one other thing. Um, I've been on the translation committee for the ESV Bible translation for a number of years. Well, ever since it began. And um, When we were working as a 12-member committee in Cambridge, England, um, during the process of the ESV translation, the days became very long days and I was becoming more and more tired and it's it's the most intense work you can imagine because we're coming up okay now we're on Matthew 18 and you've got an idea of what you want to change in Matthew 18 but you stepped out of the room to take a phone call or to take a rest stop for a minute or two and you came back in and Matthew 18 has already been voted on and you missed and it's in the Bible and it can't be changed so you don't ever fall asleep for a moment because it just, it's, it's, it's moving on in the, okay. So it's tiring and I became more and more fatigued and one day I just said, you know, I'm going to set my clock a half hour later and sleep a half hour more. I'm after all working eight or nine hours a day with twelve other, or eleven other very godly men who love the word. And we're looking at the Greek and Hebrew text and trying to translate it correctly into English. Why do I need any more personal Bible study and prayer on my own? We're praying together. I'm studying the Bible eight hours a day. And after three or four days, stuff just started to go wrong. And um, Margaret noticed that I I just was getting kind of crabby. And I just realized that my heart wasn't at peace. And if I can find this note, I wrote a note to myself. Uh, at that time, of what happened. Results of missing devotional times. Pride, talking about myself a lot, often inwardly hoping people will praise me, lack of love for friends, irritability, Relationship with friends just stall or are put on hold. General inward feeling of unease, unsettledness. Hard to concentrate on scripture and prayer. Self-reliance, no peace. And I'd say, Margaret, I'm sorry. I've been missing my time with the Lord. And I had to ask the Lord's forgiveness. And when the committee came back together the next morning, I had to say, can I just have a minute to say something? I want to apologize for many, maybe a bad attitude that I've had the last three or four days. And this is why I've been missing my personal time with the Lord. So it kind of reaffirmed to me that no matter how much I prepare in Bible study and teaching for lectures and everything else, it's no substitute for reading the Bible for myself and seeking to apply it to my own heart and spending time in the Lord's presence myself in prayer. And so you keep your walk with the Lord strong. And then, and then I think those questions of what should I do with my life, what career does he want me to have, what job does he want me to have, whom does he want me to marry, what kind of path should I take him, those things are sorted out a lot
1: in that time of prayer. Well, can I close our time in prayer? Yeah. Father, thank you so much for the way that you are at work in this world, the way that your spirit is moving, that you are bringing people from death to life. You're taking blind eyes and opening them. You're taking hearts that would never love you, never submit to you, never want to use good things that you've made in this world like profit or competition or employment or business for your glory and you're redeeming all of that you you are a God that that is in the business of redemption and reconciliation and restoration and so thank you for the way that you've done that in the lives of the men and women in this room thank you for the ways that you've done that in in Wayne's life thank you for um, whether he was 12 or 13 or some other time in his life when you turned his heart from being against you to to being alive for you and the way that you've used him. Thank you for the way that that has been a manifestation of your grace poured out. And God, I pray that you would continue to help his ministry uh, as he would even be speaking at our church tomorrow and this weekend, that you would use his words, the words that you've laid on his heart. Would you speak through them and prick hearts of, of people in business to, to live and do their financial dealings differently in a way that honors you and glorifies you more so than what they were doing and, and that you would motivate men and women in this room to when they graduate, go and give their lives away, not necessarily uh, on staff with campus outreach or on the mission field, but at Honeywell and at Wells Fargo and at Target and maybe at Target in Europe or in Indonesia or maybe uh, in Algeria. Uh, how, how amazing if you were to send some, or Albania, if you were to send someone in this room uh, when they heard about Albania being the poorest country in Europe to go there and, and to start a business and to make disciples. It would be such an amazing work of your grace. And Lord, I pray for all of us that, that you would help us walk with you. None of that happens if we don't walk with you, if we don't have intimacy mm-hmm. with you. And so keep it... Keep that intimacy real and fresh and deep. Help us battle the temptation to sleep and to stay up late, um, to, to do other things with our day, and just uh, put time with you aside. Would we know that the most important relationship that we have in this life is with you and that you have, as the God of the universe, made a way for us to know you by the death of your son. So thank you in all these things for Jesus. Thank you that everything was made For him and through him and to him. And one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so continue to use Wayne to proclaim that message as he teaches. Thank you for his sacrifice for his wife to move to Phoenix. And you've had him there and have used him there for many reasons and for your glorious purpose. And so continue to do that. And so thank you for these things. Continue to speak to our hearts this weekend um, as you would see fit. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this message from Campus Outreach Minneapolis, the college ministry of Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota.
1: Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without written permission from Campus Outreach Minneapolis. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at
0: clminneapolis.org.